Amen. You may be seated. Please open your Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 10. The book of Mark, chapter 10. If you do not have a Bible, all you have to do is raise your hand, and one of our ushers right here will let you borrow one of ours. If you do not own one, you can keep that one. If you do own one, you can just leave it in your seat when you're done, or you can give it back to an usher. We would appreciate that. But if you don't own one, we want you to have a Bible, please read it and apply it to your lives. We would love for you to do that. We've been in the book of Mark for a while, but we've only been in this series for several weeks now. Um, Next week will actually be the last week of the current series we're in, Jesus More Than a Savior. If this is your first time here in the middle of this series, that phrasing probably sounds weird to you because you're like, but he is a Savior. And we would absolutely affirm that and celebrate that. He is a Savior, but he is not only a Savior. And we've seen that throughout Mark. Uh, Mark chapters 8, 9, and 10 are really an integral part to the book of Mark. Um, The gospel writer here has given us Somewhat of a new Sinai. If you're here the week we talked about that, you know what it means. If you weren't, you can ask somebody who was, because we're not going to re-preach that sermon today. Um, and on this side, we are seeing Jesus go toward the cross. The whole rest of the book is his movement to the cross, and then eventually his death and resurrection is how Mark wraps up his book. But in today's passage, we find the reason for everything. Why is it we talk about Jesus all the time? Why is it Christians always talk about the cross? I've had people who go to churches say that Christians sing too much about the cross. It's this bloody violent thing. Why do they, why do we talk about the cross so much? Why are we so fixated on Jesus? If this is the triune God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, what, what is it about Jesus? Why do we say cross-centered and gospel-centered and talk about Jesus so much? And the reason for all these things encapsulated in the reason that Jesus came. And we find that explicitly in today's passage. Jesus is going to tell us the reason he came to earth in human form. Throughout Mark chapter 10, we've seen these lessons on discipleship, these lessons on following Jesus, things like having faith like a child. We saw the interaction with the rich young ruler. Some some of you may be familiar with some of these stories. But here in Mark chapter 10, verse 32, We're going to find Jesus predicting his death for a third time. And then we're going to find some follow-up to that. Please look in your Bibles, Mark chapter 10, verse 32. I'm going to read today's passage, and then we will work back through it together. Starting in verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. Taking the twelve aside again, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And he will rise again after three days. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask you. What do you want me to do for you? He asked them. They answered him, Allow us to sit at your right and at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We are able, they told him. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. 
When the ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Jesus called them over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of God. We'll take this passage in sections as we work through it together. The first section is verses 32 through 34, where we find a revelation. Jesus gives us a revelation. It's actually the third time he's given this specific revelation, but he gives it very clearly and in a lot of detail here, detail he did not give in chapters 8 and chapter 9. Looking back in verse 32, it says, They were on the road, that's Jesus and his followers, going up to Jerusalem. That's a common phrase you'll see in Scripture, by the way. Basically, if you're in Israel and you're in any direction from Jerusalem, if you're going back to Jerusalem, you're walking uphill. So if it says going up to, don't just think like they're going north, because that's how we would say it today. I've had people try to disprove the Bible telling me that before. If you're saying, that's a random point, why did you bring that up? That's why. People have told me, like, that's an inconsistency. I'm like, it's actually not. You just need to visit Israel and know that it's uphill. So they're going up to Jerusalem. Was that that too matter of fact? It's all right. Truth is truth. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. Now pause, because that doesn't seem like an important detail. Jesus was walking ahead of them. You're like, you know, he's the leader. They're doing like follow the leader or something. Y'all remember follow the leader, right? You got the kid at the front like flapping his wings. All the other kids flap their wings. If y'all never played follow the leader, y'all had some rough childhoods. I'm sorry. That's not what's going on, though. Jesus is walking ahead of them, and this is symbolic and important because Mark is the only gospel writer who includes that detail. Matthew and Luke include this story, but they don't say Jesus is walking out front. Mark wants to draw attention to the fact that he is walking ahead of them as they go to Jerusalem. It says the disciples were astonished. Their reaction should clue us in that it's a big deal he's out front. But those who followed him were afraid. Taking the twelve aside again, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Now, they were going to Jerusalem. And so far in Mark, we've been following Jesus around. And he's going from place to place, and he's teaching, and he's being challenged, but he's always got a good answer, and he's, he's telling people about the kingdom of God. He's telling people who he is. Mark's trying to show us that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And now they're going back to Jerusalem. And Jesus walks ahead because he knows what he's going to. None of his followers yet understood. They're astonished. They're afraid. They they know something big is about to happen, but they don't know what, even though Jesus keeps telling them, and he tells them again here in verses 33 and 34. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes. Jesus often in Mark calls himself the Son of Man. And they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And he will rise after three days. Again, in Mark, this is the third time Jesus is predicting his suffering and his death. Only now he's getting into such details as to who's going to do it, how they're going to hand him over to the Gentiles. Because some, some of us get confused. We're like, wait, did the Jews arrest him? Or, or did Rome arrest him? The Jews brought charges against him. They take him to Rome because the crucifixion, being nailed to a cross, was a Roman form 
of the death penalty. And Jesus is telling them, this is what will happen. Now imagine somebody you really like, who you look up to, who you follow, looks at you and says, hey, we're going to this next town, and when we get there, they're going to mock me and spit on me and flog me and kill me, but it's okay because I'm going to come back to life three days later. Kind of a weird thing to be telling people heading to the next town, right? Especially when you are showing no fear and walking out ahead of the group. Jesus is leading them. He's making sure they know this is where we must go. And as it has throughout Mark, Jesus is showing that while he is going to be their savior, he is not the savior many of them expect. We've hit this point a lot, but this is worth hitting again. The disciples were expecting a Messiah to come and overthrow Rome and be their great new political leader. Going to Jerusalem to them meant, hey man, you're about to show up and flex. You're going to be taking out swords. We're going to go and fight. We're going to take over Jerusalem this time. You're going to show your glory. Remember, since last time they're there, the transfiguration has happened. So they've seen his glory, some of them have. Now they're saying, we're going back to Jerusalem. It's time. And Jesus keeps telling them, no. The way to glory in the kingdom of God isn't the way it is in our world. See, the way to glory in our world, right? You've got to do something awesome and be known for it. You can be a sports star, and you can win Super Bowls or NBA championships or World Series or whatever it is. Or you can be an inventor. You can be like Steve Jobs, right? Raise your hand if you've got a smartphone. Whole bunch of people in here. Thank you, Steve Jobs. We know who he is. We hold him up. We're like, oh, man, people will always remember his name. No, they won't. Earthly glory will fade eventually. But Jesus is trying to show us that in his kingdom is a dissension into glory, not an ascension. The way down is up. I know that doesn't make sense. But in Jesus' kingdom, he's actually showing us the right way to live. The question I want you to think about, the disciples here are not getting this. Jesus has been telling them this is the third time. And you come here today, and on your way to church today, who were you expecting Jesus to be? Did you even think about Jesus on your way to church today? Were you coming for you and have your own expectations of what church should be? Do you have your own expectations of who Jesus should be, of what you want from him? Do we understand who Jesus claims to be in his own words? If you're sitting there and you go, well, I can honestly say that I haven't always thought this way about Jesus and and I do kind of see him in a different way and if we will admit that, then we're actually saying that we're a lot like James and John because in verses 35 through 40, we find a request from James and John. It says, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask you. First of all, that's bold, right? We've seen Jesus doing all this other stuff, and they come in, they're like, we want you to do our way. But Jesus, being the kind, compassionate Lord that he is, verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? He asked them. They answered him, allow us to sit at your right and your left in your glory. I think it's interesting that in their request there in verse 37, they say, your right, your left, in your glory, because it sounds like they're trying to put Jesus first, right? They put good language around it of like, yeah, we're doing this for Jesus, but really like it's a position of them wanting to be great. Understand symbolically here, the, per- the people who sat to Jesus' right and left are the people with the most power next to Jesus. 
And notice that just two of them came. They didn't bring like four of them together and be like, Jesus, at least two of us want to sit there because that would be like the selfless thing, right? No, they just came and said, we want these seats. We want to be the ones in charge. We want to be the ones who sit right by you and get to tell other people what to do. Now, I know none of us have ever been bossy or enjoyed, you know, places of authority. That just, that's not what good Christian people do, right? James and John, very much like us, misunderstand And even though they take a seemingly Christ-centered approach that says your right hand, your left hand, your glory, it's really self-centered in the guise of humility. I wonder how many of us that is when we come to worship on a Sunday. How many of us give the appearance of humility, give the appearance of Christian fruit in our lives, but really our lives are all about us. Maybe you've only thought about yourself since you woke up this morning. Maybe you're frustrated because you didn't get the breakfast you want. Maybe you weren't right on time because somebody didn't go with the light when they were supposed to. Maybe your phone isn't staying as charged as long as you want. Maybe you're frustrated because your friends want to go eat somewhere for lunch after this that you don't want to go. See how easy it is for us to get self-centered? But we say, I'm going to church. It's all about Jesus, is it? Is our life all about Jesus? Are we really centering on him? Are we being like James and John here? Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. (laughs) I love Jesus, and I mean that like genuinely and emotionally and all those kind of things, but y'all, sometimes I just love Jesus, right? You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? First of all, I know that sentence ends in a preposition, but I'm blaming the Christian Standard Bible because that's not how I would say it, but I'm just reading what's on the page, okay? He says, you don't know what you're asking. Some of y'all are like, what is grammar? Ask a friend later, one of the ones who laughed, they'll get it. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? What is he talking about? Why does Jesus start talking about cups and baptism? If you're not used to reading the Bible, this is this confusing language, but you see, we find multiple times where Jesus talks about the cup. Specifically, it takes my mind to the Garden of Gethsemane where he prays before he is arrested, before they take him away and nail him to a cross. And he prays that the Father would take the cup from him, yet not his will, but the Father's will be done. What cup is Jesus referring to in all these instances? He's talking about the cup of God's wrath. It's his to drink down. So when they say, we want to sit at your right hand and your left hand, he says, do you really want to drink the cup I'm going to drink? And when he talks about baptism, we say, what, what, what is Jesus talking about with his baptism? Baptism, for Christians, is symbolic of being buried with Christ and raised to new life. It's a public profession that we have been buried with him and raised to new life in him. Jesus here talking about his baptism isn't talking about symbolic. He's talking about the fact that he's going to die and be buried. So when he turns this back on them, Jesus gets this very seriously. Do you want to drink the cup? Do you want to be baptized like I'm going to be baptized? James and John could not have known, could not have known the depth of what he was saying. 
But today as Christians, we do. You, you may go to a church, hopefully you've been here enough that you've seen us take the Lord's Supper regularly. Hopefully you've seen us have baptism, something we want to do more of. If, if you're not a believer and you become one, we will talk to you about being baptized and following Jesus in that. Because when we do that, y'all, sometimes we can say, it's just we're doing this for memory, right? We're remembering what Jesus did when we, when we take the cup, or with baptism, we're just remembering what he did. But there is also a current stance of participation in what Jesus has done. It's an announcement to the world that, yes, we are remembering what Jesus has done, but we participate now, and we are anticipating what is to come. With the cup, we anticipate the future marriage supper of the Lamb, when we will be with Jesus, and he will again take the supper with us. And in baptism, we are anticipating future everlasting life in glorified bodies like his. Now, I lost some of you because I started saying everlasting life and glorified bodies, and you're like, man, this is weird. Yes, the Bible gets crazy sometimes, but it is a good eternal hope, y'all. And it's worth us getting into those weeds a little bit. And remember, these are biblical terms that historically have been held by Christians. So Jesus here, he says, do you want the cup? Do you want the baptism? Notice what they say in verse 39. God admire their boldness. We are able, they told him. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink. And you will be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right hand or my left, is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. I try to make this a lighter sermon because I know I'm a more serious person in general. But the more I read and studied this passage, y'all, it's just serious. It is. Because Jesus is talking about going to his death. He's going confidently. He's leading the way. And his followers, who he's had for years now, are not getting it. So much not getting it that they're still asking things of him. Just like we do. Isn't it true that we often come to Jesus and we ask him for things, but we don't actually want Jesus? We just want what he can give us? what we perceive will be for our good. We don't understand that he is the ultimate good that is for our good. When was the last time you prayed, Jesus, I just want more of you? When was the last time you felt that? Have you you ever thought that? Do you understand that the point of heaven is not just for us to get good things from God? It's that we get to be with God. James and John missed it completely. And when Jesus asked them if if they can drink the cup that he has to drink, if they're going to be baptized the way he's going to be baptized, they're bold enough to say, we are able. And Jesus actually confirms that they will. In verses 41 through 45, we find a last thing in this passage. We find a ransom. It says, when the ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. We've seen this word indignant before from Jesus. It means they're angry, they're frustrated, they can't believe that he's telling them they will receive these things. Jesus called them over and said to them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. 
And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. If you're here today and you are not a Christian, that probably doesn't sound appealing at all. You're like, y'all follow this Jesus guy? He tells you to be a servant and a slave? Yes. Because in Jesus, we find that this is the actual paradigm of reality and of eternity. This is the paradigm that actually brings us joy. Because how many of us in here have tried the opposite and found it to be empty? How many of us in here have tried not to serve? We've tried to lead. We've tried to press ourselves out front. We've tried to shine and be the best, right? We find emptiness. We find loneliness. We find discouragement. Oh, if you get all the money in the world and all the power in the world and everyone answers to you, if you don't have Jesus, you will still feel empty. For those of us who do follow Jesus, do we act on this command? Do we look for opportunities to serve? We'll just start right here in the church. You may come to the church and say, man, I'm, I'm just a regular leader. You know, people look to me. I've, I've got speaking dynamics. This is me. I'm, I'm, I'm the upfront person. Do you know what we're supposed to look for as Christians? We're supposed to look for the people who are serving. We're supposed to look for people who see a need and don't say, hey, uh, somebody go get Marcus because something in the kids' room needs to be cleaned up. No, you see the stuff that needs to be cleaned up and you clean it up. Amen. Right? Some of y'all read this and you're like, how did you get that out of this passage? Because some of this is super practical. Some of this isn't that hard. And yet we make it so hard because we are so self-centered. We don't like doing things for other people. Even if it's people we like. I will confess to y'all, sometimes I'm at home with my wife and she'll ask me to do something. Something that'll take me all of three seconds. And when she asks me, there's that moment of, who are you asking me what to do? People laugh awkwardly because they're like, oh, don't make eye contact with the spouse. She knows. <laughs> That's us, y'all. Whether it's your roommate or your sibling or whoever you got, you know that we are selfish people and it shows up all the time, even with the people we're close to, even with the people we love. And Jesus says, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. That's a paradigm shift. We're talking about down is up. There you go. But this is the good news of all of this. We said we we're going to talk about the reason, right? The reason for everything, the reason Jesus came, the reason Jesus is calling us to be servants is found in verse 45, which is a key verse that sums up all of this passage. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the one who has existed before all creation, through whom and for whom all things have been created, he humbled himself and he came to us in flesh. Why? To overthrow Rome and set up his kingdom as now we're ruling over the known world? No. He came to us to serve us. He came to us to live without sin as we should and as we have not. More than that, 
He came to go to the cross. There it is again, the cross. These Christians and their crosses, they hang them around their necks. They don't even know what they mean. We put them on top of buildings. The reason Christians are obsessed with the cross is because it's the center of the way we see everything. The cross is the picture of how we lead. The cross is the picture of how we love. It is complete self-denial, self-sacrifice. And Jesus went to the cross for sinners like you and me. He took on the guilt and shame and sins that we have that he did not bring on himself because he was without sin. And he willingly died in the place of many sinners. He died for all who will believe in him and repent of their sins. And we read verses like this and we get them tattooed and we make t-shirts with them and we put them on social media and we lose the weight of what he's saying. Even the Son of Man, God himself in the second person, the Son, Jesus Christ, did not come to be served. You realize that Jesus could have easily shown up on the earth and said, bow down now. And we would because everything was created through his words. You know why Jesus is able to calm storms with his words? Why he's able to cast out demons with his words? Why he's able to heal people with his words? Because everything that exists already knows his voice because we're created by it. We respond to his voice because he is God who came not to be served but to serve. He shows that throughout his life the way he has compassion on people, the way he washes people's feet, the way he hangs out with the outcasts. And ultimately, the way he willingly goes to the cross, the way he shows us what his kingdom is all about, is leading his disciples, leading all of his followers, all of us, to the cross. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, a ransom means something had to be paid. And don't get confused. People are like, who, who's he paying off? He, did he have to pay off Satan? Or like, did we owe him something? No. You see, all of us in here, we are all sinners before God. We've all rebelled against him. We've all committed cosmic treason, is what R.C. Sproul calls it. I think that's a helpful term. Every act of rebellion against God, and we don't do what he says, is sin that must be paid for because he's holy, because he's righteous, because he's perfect. And because he is just, there must be payment for sin. Evil does not get a pass. That's good news, y'all. So Jesus, knowing the depth of our debt, took it on himself and paid the price with his perfect life, with his very blood. He bled and died so that we could be with him forever. So that we could be reconciled to God and reconciled to our brothers and sisters in Christ. So that we can have life and purpose. So that we can know the reason we were made, the reason we exist. The reason Christians talk about the cross all the time is because it's central to everything. 
The idea of substitutionary sacrifice is one of the most compelling stories in existence. And this is why, because it calls us back to the substitutionary sacrifice. Do I have any Harry Potter fans in the house? A couple really excited, cool. The rest of y'all are like, I don't want to hear about Harry Potter. Well, guess what you're going to. So the beginning of Harry Potter, you find out that Harry is a special child and he has survived Lord Voldemort coming and trying to kill him. How? Because his mom, Lily, sacrifices herself for him and her love covers him so that the Dark Lord cannot touch him. That's the basis of this whole series, y'all. And, and we get, if you're a parent who's like, I don't let my kids read it because it's wizardry and stuff, we can talk about that later because that's a very Christian principle, it sounds like to me. And even better, that's right, I'm going to ruin the end too because that's the very beginning. At the very end, in the seventh book, that's right, I've read the books and not just watched the movies. In the seventh book, it makes it a lot more clear than the movie. Harry, who it turns out has a lot of other issues that I won't get all into, has to lay down his life if he wants his friends to live. And he does. He willingly lays down his life. And again, in the book, it makes it clear what the movie doesn't. When Harry goes and lays down his life, it actually gives protection to his friends who are defending Hogwarts. If you don't know what that is, you can ask somebody later. But it's that substitutionary sacrifice. And I'm in college when that book came out, and I'm just reading through it on the second day it's out, finishing it, because it's a long book and I couldn't finish it in the first day. But I was on the second day that it was out and I was trying to finish it and tears are just streaming down my face. Why? Because that substitutionary sacrifice speaks to us at deep levels. Somewhere down in us, because we were all made in the image of God, we know that we are sinners who need someone to be our substitute. And we long for that. And when we read it in other stories or we see it in other movies, because you see again and again in movies how that's a theme, it connects with us. Because at a deep level, we long to know the Son of Man who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We long to know that truth. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus, I want you to know that if you will trust in him, call upon him as Savior and Lord, and turn away from your sins, you can count him as your substitute. Your debt has been paid at the cross. His righteousness is now credited to you. You can be with God forever. You're no longer seen as an enemy of God or as a sinner, but you're seen as a child of God forever. And if you're here today and you're a Christian, which I know a lot of you are. A lot of us profess to be. Maybe we've begun to buy into what our culture is telling us. Maybe we think it's okay to gloss over the reason. Maybe we think it's okay to, to gloss over the cross. It's too bloody, it's too vile, it's too hard to explain to people. They don't, they don't understand. They think it's cosmic child abuse, which it's not. Maybe, maybe we're just tired of it. Maybe we say, every song we sing, death, burial, resurrection, why, why are we coming back to this? We come back to this because this is the paradigm through which God brings change. As the gospel goes forth, the Holy Spirit works mightily in power and transforms us into Christ's likeness. And that is how we can follow him as servants. 
If my sermon today had been, hey, look, Jesus is teaching us about humility. We always need to be more humble and serve more. Some of you would have been so pumped and been like, great, let's go serve more. Cool. We can get people behind it. I can go get, you know, all my friends who aren't Christians and we, we can go serve. Awesome. But when we put it in context of who Jesus is and what he's done, we know that his call to serve means a call of dying to ourselves. He's calling to follow him to the cross. You can say, I want Jesus, I want to live forever, but if you reject his cross, if you reject servanthood, then you're rejecting Jesus. You see, because Jesus is a savior at the cross. But he's more than a savior, he's also a servant. Isaiah 53 describes a suffering servant. I encourage you to read that chapter on your own later. Isaiah 53, read that one on your own later. And think about Jesus, the suffering servant. And know that this is what he calls us to. He doesn't just say, go and be humble, go and serve. He says, watch me give the ultimate act of service and sacrifice and come follow me. Do you see why we preach this instead of just saying, be humble and serve? Because if we preach this gospel... And if by God's grace, his spirit enables us to even glimpse the truth of this gospel, then we will go and serve with reckless abandon. There will be no limit to how much we serve or how much grace we give to other people. There will be no limit to how much suffering we are willing to endure because we have a suffering Savior who suffered for us in our place. The gospel transforms us and compels us in ways that just saying, you should do this, will never do. That's why we come back to this reason. The reason that Jesus came was to die. We were made to glorify God And in our sin, we've ruined our ability to do so. But because of Jesus, because he came and did not sin and took our place on the cross, he drank the cup that we could not drink. He was baptized in a way that we could not be baptized. And he defeated sin and death with his resurrection. He came back to life to prove that his payment was full Because the reason that he came was to die. We now know that the reason that we were made for glory was actually for our good. Do you see how it connects a little bit here? You say, wait, you just said I need to follow him to death. How is that for my good? Because if we try in our own to be great, if we try in our own to be known, If we try to make everyone love us, we'll fail. And we'll fail, and we'll fail, and we'll fail, and we'll never make it. But if we rest in Christ, and if we follow his example, and we serve, we take the low road, and we serve. We look for opportunities to serve. We look for opportunities to love. We give other people credit. We don't worry about getting credit for ourselves. 
then we actually will find eternal joy that we won't find if we only seek greatness on its own. If we follow Jesus to the cross, we will find meaning and purpose that will last forever. And it will reveal to us the reason that we were made and the reason that in Christ we can be remade, we can be born again. When was the last time you thought about Jesus as a servant? I think it's healthy for us to return to that picture. Because a lot of times we only want the triumphant, conquering the grave, returning in glory, Jesus. And he is that Jesus. But will we follow Jesus to wash others' feet? To love those who no one else loves? To die to ourselves for God's glory, for our good, and for the good of those around us? I hope we will. Let's pray.